I'm an advocate before I'm an actor. I'm social justice warrior before I'm an artist. Storytelling is the only way I know how to communicate these things, but at my core, I'm an advocate for myself, for other people, for anybody who's marginalized and needs their voice uplifted. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro. Welcome to season two of Live at the Lortel. We created this podcast to invite artists working off-Broadway to share their current projects. As we start season two, theater is still on pause. But while our stages are silent, the theater is undergoing a reckoning of twin pandemics, the COVID-19 virus and the virus of systemic racism. This season, we're sharing this platform with different co-hosts from the BIPOC community as we roll up our sleeves to talk to artists about creating art during COVID as well as systemic racism in our community and country. We hope these conversations will help motivate and begin to heal as we discuss these painful issues. Today, my co-host is the recipient for the 2020 Lucille Lortel for Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, my friend, John Andrew Morrison, for his performance in the Pulitzer Prize winning stage musical, A Strange Loop. Good afternoon, everybody, or actually good morning, everyone. Welcome to Live at the Lortel via Zoom. I'm really excited to have everyone here. And it's a very interesting new platform that we're working from with Zoom. So it's actually live at the Lortel through Zoom now. As all the participants come in, I'm going to welcome my co-host this afternoon, John Andrew Morrison. John. Hello, Eric. How are you today? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. Yourself? I'm well, thank you. Is it morning or afternoon? Where are we? What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) the past seven months, morning, (laughs) afternoon, evening, I I don't know. But actually, as of right now, it is morning. So good morning. How are things in Jamaica? Um, things in Jamaica are quite lovely. It's rainy season, so it's very mosquito-y. Say that again? It's lots of mosquitoes. It's oh, mosquito-y. Mosquito. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's welcome our guest and welcome our audience. Thank you all for joining us this morning. We're really excited today to welcome actor, activist, maybe Burke. Maybe. Welcome to Live at the Lortel. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're so glad you're here. You look hello, lovely. Hello. Today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so let's start right off. How are you? How have you been over the past? I mean, you know, there doesn't seem to be th- anything going on in the world right now, right? Everything is right. Okay. So, <laughs> no, really. How how the past six seven months been since the pandemic hit you? Um, I mean, there's been a whirlwind it's been a roller coaster you know i made a post a couple of months ago actually about how based on like the pandemic at large i'm actually doing a lot better than i do normally um in terms of like mental health and things for a lot of reasons as a person who deals with like social anxiety a lot not having to be in crowds a lot is actually really great for me and like um being a trans person who has to navigate like public bathroom usage and being misgendered every day, like not seeing strangers all the time is actually really good for my mental health. But then as an actor and as an artist, 
it's rough. I'm struggling trying to find little creative projects where I can. I'm trying to get used to doing readings on Zoom, which is a nightmare. (laughs) Um, And a thing that I can't really manage and I don't really know how to make it possible for myself. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, there's back and forth. Some days I feel really calm and relaxed and good. Um, Some days I'm wanting to burn down the establishment and (laughs) angry at the world. I think we all feel that way. It depends on the day. Yeah, none of, well, none of us have ever lived through a global pandemic, you know, civil rights movement in an election year before. So I say every feeling is valid. Every single feeling is valid. Thank you. Have you? How, so you mentioned being creative. How are you writing? What what are, what what are you doing to stay creative? I am not writing. I tell myself at least like twice a week that I'm going to start writing again. How's that going? (laughs) We don't do it. It doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, Honestly, most of my creativity these days is on TikTok. I did get a TikTok during this pandemic. um, And it's a nice controlled like one minute thing that you do. And like there's a lot of like pianists on TikTok who will just like play a song and then you duet and like sing along to whatever like 32 bar cut they've made that's like the capacity that i have for creativity right now (laughs) there's not much else going on um i've been lucky to have like a couple of auditions and things and a couple of like voiceover gigs that i can be doing from home for the most part it's me in my basement preparing roles that I might be able to play in the future. <laughs> and and, right. and where, where are you? Where, I'm just curious, where, where in the world are you? Are you in New York right now? Are you? I'm, yeah, I'm in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. I've been here the entire time. I was on Long Island for like a couple of days, but that was for a funeral, um, not really for vacation. Um, you grew up, you grew up in you. Long Island, right? I did, and so oh, did you. Yeah. Um, oh, you yeah. Did I grew up in. <laughs> I've been <laughs> listening to your podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I grew up in um, Lake Grove, um, okay. right by Ronkonkoma and Stony Brook. Yeah, and so my grandmother unfortunately passed in April. It was like her time, and due to natural causes, and so we went out there for a couple of days. It was actually really awkward though. Cause it was like at the time that we were kind of in like the peak of the pandemic. So like only her family could go to the funeral. We like didn't do the typical sit in church funeral that we do like we did for my grandpa and all of those things. We just socially distanced around the cemetery. It was a very surreal experience to lose somebody during the height of social distancing yeah of course i'm sorry i'm sorry maybe yeah so maybe this i was reading your story on your website and you grew up in long island and you wanted to be a director you wanted to be an actor take me through your career path after college and why you chose to be an artist yeah my career path is such a weird thing to call it honestly Not that your choice of calling it that is weird. I just, I didn't have a path in mind. When I started college, I was planning on being a guidance counselor in a high school. And I wanted to direct and choreograph the shows at that school. And then I ended up bouncing around. I went to three different colleges because I really didn't know what I wanted to be doing. And then I finally went to Pace and got a degree in directing 
there was like the light bulb aha moment when I was choreographing a show while I was like a psych major on Long Island, actually. I was choreographing a show at a community theater and I got home one night from like shopping for costumes and things like that. And I was like, oh, I didn't write a paper for my psych class that I was supposed to write. And I was like, I spend so much more time on these shows than on my schoolwork. And I was like, oh, these shows should be my schoolwork. Cool, cool. (laughs) So I ran away. And then I went to Pace to be a director. At the time, I wasn't pursuing acting. When I started college, I wasn't pursuing theater at all, just because I didn't see it as like a thing that I could sustainably do and like that I could make a career, um, anything creative. And then directing was a way that I found a little more of a place that I could actually like flourish and that I could be seen, which was, I think, hand in hand with my own self-image and self-worth issues. But also it was the same time that I was realizing that I was transgender and there weren't roles for people like me at the time. And there, I didn't have any examples of actors that I could point to being like, that's the career I want. Like that's the person doing the stuff I want to be doing. So that was really intimidating While I was in school, I like met a lot of people. I was like stage managing and assistant directing with some like downtown theater companies and things. And then after I left school, I was trying to like do the freelance director thing. What I found a lot was that some people, they would only like get me an interview for a show if it was queer or if it had a trans character in it. And often I would interview to do a show And they would turn me down and like not give me the job as a director, but then offer me an audition. And it became like very clear that I internalized the message pretty loudly that the representation of having a trans person on your team really only mattered if they could show it off on stage. And that having me direct a show didn't get them as many brownie points as putting me on stage and showing me off. And I started working with Honest Accomplice Theater who... Maggie Keenan-Bolger and Rachel Sullivan co-founded this company that devises all of their material through the lens of women and trans folks. And I started working with them and I started as an assistant stage manager and assistant director. And then one of the trans actors dropped out of the cast and they were like, hey, maybe? And I was like, oh, I'm not an actor. And they were like, half our cast aren't actors. You are now. (laughs) And then... Because it was a devised piece, I got to create a role that felt exactly like me. And I got to create stories that I wanted to be telling. And I got to write a lot of that script for myself and with my good friend, Austin Click, who was playing the role with me. And I learned a joy of acting that I hadn't realized before. And I like had been performing since I was in like the fourth grade, but I had been playing roles that weren't meant for me and weren't intended for me. And that kind of like lit a spark in me. I met them in like, I think 2015 and started working with Honest Accomplice. And it took until like two years ago for me to like fully claim and be like, I'm going to pursue acting like full time mainstream going to do this thing. Between those years, it was a couple of years of me being like, I'm an actor and a director and a lighting designer and a choreographer. Hire me, someone. (laughs) Just like, I'll do anything in a room. But honestly, it was the thing of I found different ways to bring myself into art. And I wrote a show for myself to perform. And I have a solo show called Love Letters to Nobody that I've done a couple of times downtown and on Long Island. 
where I was teaching myself to act again because I got to play myself and I got to be like more genuine and grounded in myself in a way I had never been able to do in any performances as a child or any of my classes in college because I was always so worried about being what somebody else in the room wanted me to be. And then when I got to just be myself and tell my own story on stage, I really got to like be like, oh, I'm good at this. And also like, it's not that hard to just tell my story and be myself in front of people. I mean, I would say that actually being honest and telling your story is hard for a lot of people. How did your activism become a part of your art? Like where did the chutzpah to be able to just go, this is my story and I'm, I'm going to share it or explore it and reveal it come from? So I guess that's two questions, right? Your activism and your art. And where does that come from? How did that develop gaining your voice? Yeah, I think I'm an advocate before I'm an actor. I'm social justice warrior before I'm an artist. Storytelling is the only way I know how to communicate these things, but at my core, I'm an advocate for myself, for other people, for anybody who's marginalized and needs their voice uplifted. And so Love Letters to Nobody specifically, that show was born out of a smaller piece that I had written while I was in college around my experience with sexual assault as a teenager. And I had written this very short play that started as just like a monologue that was called Do You Want Me to Stop? In which I was talking about and directly addressing the man who raped me when I was 14 years old. The reason I wrote that in college was because I had told that story to a couple of different people during my life and like romantic endeavors, but also just like friends and folks that I could rely on. And nine times out of 10, when I told somebody my version of what happened, they had a story too. And they had their own story. And they had never heard somebody else talk about it. And I was like, realizing that this was before the Me Too movement. And like, literally I had, or the, before like the peak of the Me Too movement that we saw, where I was already aware of this, like, every time I tell my story, I'm literally met with, oh, Me Too. Like everybody had some version of trauma that wasn't getting addressed, people weren't talking about. And a lot of people felt really seen and really validated when they heard me talk about it. And I was relatively comfortable talking about it and I thought it was really important to talk about. And so I was like, how many people can I yell this at? Like how many people can we reach? Because it seems that in me just being vulnerable and like sharing what happened to me It is impacting people's lives and like helping people move through their own stuff. And also what I found in a lot of my advocacy work is that having conversations about things, even if it's not exactly what a person went through, having conversations about the similar things that I've gone through that another person has gone through helps them find verbiage to talk about their own experiences. And using my words and the ways that I've had conversations with people and showing that to other folks helps them to ground their own experiences in similar language. And so really, Love Letters to Nobody, when I first started writing it, I wasn't actually even planning on performing it. I was writing it for my friend Austin, who was um, working with Honest Accomplice at the time. And then Austin moved to California and it got picked up to be in a festival. And I was like, 
okay, I guess I'm doing this now. (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of like accidentally started performing my advocacy work. And that play was, I mean, that play is also largely based in just like my experiences with love and relationships and heartbreak and all of those things. But I think it's also really important to see that from the perspective of a trans feminine person on stage, because I hadn't really seen a story like that told through my lens. And I know that audiences weren't seeing people like me on stage, let alone seeing people like me who love themselves fully and have a thriving romantic life and trauma they're working through and moving past stigma in all of those ways. That's amazing to me. Um, you mean such a people aren't used to seeing an evolved trans person that is kind of coming out on the other side yeah. and a, a play about that where our society is so used to seeing the parts that are being written for trans people as, you know, the prostitute and the, uh, the prisoner. And so that's why it's so refreshing. You know, I want to talk just a little bit about the play that you did off Broadway, Safe Word, which kind of started to kind of spin out of control with the reviews. And I, I only want to shine a light on it because I think your advocacy behind it and how you came out on the other side of it is to me magnificent. So can you talk a little bit about the experience with Safe Word and and what happened? Yeah, so I actually had been involved with Safe Word in a reading before we did that production. So I was there for a couple of rewrites of the script and there were a lot of rewrites while we were in the room. The thing that excited me most when I first got the script for Safe Word was one of the first things I do when I get a script, especially when a character is specifically labeled as trans, I like skim through reading all of my lines and not really paying attention to the scenes I'm not in. Um, But (laughs) if we're being honest here. um, (laughs) I do the same thing. I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, how many lines do I say? Yeah, (laughs) and then you pull the highlighter out. But yes, exactly right. right. But the thing that I'm really doing is looking for that moment. And trans folks might know what I'm saying when I say that moment, but I'm looking for the moment where we come out or it's trauma porn or somebody misgenders us and we have to explain it for the audience or whatever that moment is, there's usually a moment. There's the moment that is the reason you're hiring a trans person to come and perform trauma for you. And Safe Word didn't have that moment. Safe Word was just existing. And there's a couple of plays that I've seen, but very few written by cis people where It's just a non-binary person in relationship with the other people on stage and they use they, them pronouns and like some things come up about it, but there's no like aha or like shock reveal moment, which was really special for me to see in a script. And that's why I latched onto the project. We also worked very closely with our associate director, Mika Kaufman, who's also non-binary. And Mika and I had a lot of conversations about Chris, my character, and about the representation that we were having and all of those things. And then through a couple of rewrites and cuts and things during previews and whatnot, we realized after these reviews came out and everything, we realized that because of some cuts, 
we no longer actually used Chris's pronouns. I think they were only used once in the show as it stood when we opened. And so for the most part, nobody was ever like referring to my character. And so nobody ever heard them using they, them pronouns to describe me. And because we didn't have any of those like explaining moments about me being the trans character on stage, a lot of audiences were misgendering me. And a lot of audiences were reading me as a quote man in a dress, which is what the reviews called me. And so there was this like strange moment in my head where I was like, the reason I latched onto this project is because a non-binary person could exist without having to explain themselves to the audience, to the people on stage and all of those things. However, our audiences weren't ready for that. Reviewers weren't ready for that. And unfortunately, it ended up being a really hard thing for me to navigate reading those reviews and seeing me get misgendered in literally every review of the show that came out on opening night and realize that like the reason I signed on to this project, like this thing that I was actually proud of that we didn't have to explain it was then causing me damage. I'm saying causing me damage in that like the next couple of nights doing the show was really hard for me because I wasn't able to fully be in the moment on stage. I went back to my like teenage self being worried about what people were thinking about me and how I was being perceived and, oh, maybe I should hold my leg like this instead. And like all of those things that you shouldn't be thinking about in a performance <laughs> because I was so bogged down by what people were seeing instead of what we were saying. You were in your head. Completely. You said a mouthful when you said being hired to perform trauma. Like, I was like, whoa, I so understand that. One of the questions that Eric had actually wanted to ask was about being misgendered. Talk to us about what that is and what that experience is for you when it happens. I like that you asked me that question for me, um, because I'm going to note that I'm obviously just one experience. And so what it is for me is not what it is for everybody. I'm not in a place where I'm trying to speak on behalf of all trans people ever. I'm one white, skinny, able-bodied, neurotypical, cute trans person that gets away with a lot of things because of those privileges. Um, and Clear. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I call myself cute, but also like as an actor, that helps. Um, and that is a privilege that I hold. Um, and it helps these conversations. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it's a thing for me. I get misgendered all the time. Like I'm non-binary. I'm not trying to conform. I'm not trying to like look a certain way for folks. And I am generally fine being misgendered because what people say about me doesn't affect my own self-image most often. And that's part of what really shocked me with Safe Word and with those reviews was that I was really not okay when I got misgendered in those reviews. And I like had a very emotional response. And then I had to also unpack why I was having an emotional response to being misgendered when I typically can just like brush it off and laugh it off. And what I realized was as an actor and as like a public figure at all, I consider myself to be having somewhat of a responsibility representing trans folks. And like I was saying, I can't speak on behalf of like all trans people but I do have a responsibility to like look good for us, or at least I feel a responsibility to look good for us and to like give us a good name. And realizing that I was being misgendered in the reviews, 
it wasn't so much like, oh no, like I'm being misgendered. People think these things about me. I was like, oh no, I've let my people down. Like I've messed up. And in not explaining myself to this audience, I've actually made it harder for the next non-binary person to come in and do this, which a lot of people were very graciously let me know that I was not letting them down. And this was part of the process and all of those things. But I had this feeling of like, I have a responsibility to this community and I dropped the ball. Where I started understanding a lot more of what other people feel when they get misgendered. It like a lot of people have a lot of the feelings I was feeling on stage. They feel those in their daily life and everywhere they go, they're experiencing, oh, don't hold your hand like that. Hold your hand like this. And maybe people won't say anything this time. People won't comment if you pitch your voice up higher and things like that. And that's largely a safety tactic for a lot of folks. And it's largely a survival skill, but it's also just like basic human comfort of like not wanting to go around the world and having to explain yourself to every person you might come into contact with that day. Being misgendered, depending on the context and the person who's doing it and your mental state when it's happening and how many times it's happened to you that week can register in a lot of different ways and can have a lot of different responses. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your experience. And yeah, the responsibility of bearing the burden for your larger community. You know, I kind of want to go back just because it seems like Honest Accomplice is an artistic home. It's a safe place. It's um, Talk to us about Honest Accomplice and what it means to have your community of people to help create and what you all are doing. Yeah. I mean, Honest Accomplice, I love and adore. Unfortunately, I can't perform with them anymore um, when we do have the ability to perform in person <laughs> because they're, they don't work under equity contracts. And now that I've joined the union, I'm not able to perform with them anymore. But honestly, as like a young person finding my voice and like finding roles that weren't for me, but like said they were for me often, it was really scary navigating like how I could exist in this world. And then being able to be in a room of, it wasn't all trans people in the room. When I joined Honest Accomplice, there were only three trans folks in the room and then one of them quit and that's how I got that role. And so it was just me and Austin for most of that process. But it was a room full of folks who wanted to learn and wanted to do better and wanted us to be part of their story. And that was a beautiful thing. I learned a lot about how I currently teach and the advocacy work that I currently do just in conversations with those women because it was a group of people who wanted to learn and like weren't going to be like aggressively against anything we said, but sometimes we got into debates and sometimes we pushed some like emotional buttons and had to work through things. And it was a lot of like trial and error of finding the best ways to say something and the best ways to explain our feelings and our experiences. There's a beautiful scene in the first show I did with them, which is the birds and the bees unabridged. And that's all about female and transsexuality. There's this beautiful scene that I'm so proud of between my character Emerson and their mother, where they're like explaining the use of they them pronouns and the fact that they're non-binary and like the language around it. And it's a dual scene where their mother is talking to them and then every now and then in the scene, the mother turns around and she's at work explaining it all to her boss. 
it's a beautiful like show of what we were doing in the room was that I would have a conversation with Megan who was playing my mother. And then when the conversation came up later with the full group and like with the other actors in the room, Megan would be able to explain it to people so that I didn't have to do it again. And it was like this beautiful building of community where I was talking to women who had never met a person like me, like women of a certain age, there were a whole like large group of so many different experiences in the room. And like, I was learning about experiences of different women in the room as well. Like it wasn't just that we were learning about trans folks. It was like a give and take a lot, but it was a beautiful like resource share and skill share. And like, we really like built ourselves up together. And then that show and that experience and that scene actually sparked and spurred us creating a video series explaining trans identities because we realized the conversations we were having, a lot of other folks weren't having. And so we created the Trans Literacy Project that I founded with Honest Accomplice Theatre that is just a free video series on YouTube where we have like trans 101 videos and videos explaining like what trans people hear when you say certain things. And so we've kind of taken the magic from that room and like the spark of the conversations and the like educational materials that we've built. And we're just broadcasting them now as loudly as we can and trying to keep folks on the most current page that we can get folks on in terms of language and representation. Talk a little bit more about the trans uh, literacy project that you started and how people can find it and find answers to it. Because when I was looking it up yesterday, it definitely made things very clear. I mean, it seems to be kind of the ABCs within, within this world of, of, and now I was like, oh, okay, yes, that makes sense. Talk to me a little bit of how it started and, and how people can find it. Yeah, so truly when I was working with Honest Accomplice a lot, Maggie and Rachel had a meeting with me where they were basically like, you're very involved with us. What do you want to do? <laughs> Um, and they named me their artistic associate. And I basically was like, I want to teach people how to talk about trans folks because I don't think they're doing it right. And so from interest from the scene that I was talking about and my interest in doing that, we decided a video series was the best way to attack that. And so we made this video series. They're free on YouTube. You can just search trans literacy project, um, trans literacy being two separate words. If trans literacy is one word, it actually means something else. And that's already <laughs> a word. Um, and that's like literacy across like all forms of communication. That's not us, but the trans literacy project, or you can go to honestaccomplice.org and find our information there. Also, if you're in New York and you work for a company that I think has more than like 25 employees, you've probably seen one of our videos because we partnered with the New York City Commission on Human Rights. And there's a gender-based harassment training video where we explain like the basic fundamental concept of gender in two minutes, which is not a full <laughs> explanation of gender. However, <laughs> we did the best that we could in two minutes. That's amazing, though. It's that's incredible that you you kind of built this platform to to put out to people so can educate themselves and educate their company with what it's about. I also want to remind our audience and people that are watching that please feel free to ask our guest a question. There's a question and answer tab. 
can ask the question live or John or myself are happy to ask the question to maybe for you. So, okay, let's keep going. I'm interested in that bowl type above the title trans role, <laughs> you know, when you go in for the, the trans role. What is that experience like auditioning? And what does that mean? You talked about seeing those moments when, okay, all right, this is why they're hiring. But talk to me about what that means and how we can maybe do better. <laughs> <laughs> My first thought is like to do better, do literally anything other than what the industry is doing. Um, but I think honestly, the trans role is so boring to me. <laughs> when I see the trans role, it's often the only role for a trans person that somebody's going to hire. It's often written by a cis person who doesn't actually understand the character that they're writing. It's often asking me to play into stereotypes or become a version of like a generalized community member that I don't actually feel like. And it's often asking me to like trade on my actual personal politics in order to tell this story. Where I've been in auditions I was in a couple of rounds of callbacks for a musical a couple of years ago where when they called me for my final callback, they told me to make sure I got a closer shave before I came in. I've been in auditions where they asked me if maybe is my real name and when I decided to change it, which I was like, how many actors do you know that are actually using their birth names? It's not just like the roles that we're playing, but like the situations that actors are put in when they're asked to come in for these roles. And then sometimes when we actually end up booking them, because if it is like a trauma porn kind of scene where we're being misgendered a whole bunch, most of the people in the room are hearing us being misgendered in the script over and over again. And so they'll continue misgendering us either in the rehearsal room or on set, wherever it is, because they're used to hearing it done wrong. And it puts actors in a really uncomfortable situation and oftentimes like a really emotionally unsafe situation. And I've felt like really uncomfortable in some roles that I've been in and had to like have a friend on standby that I could like text to vent to because I was like, I'm out of my depth here and I don't really feel comfortable speaking up and like I should be lucky for this opportunity and like all of those things where I'm really putting like my humanity on the line and like I'm dehumanizing myself for a paycheck which is like not something anybody should really have to go through that being said I've also in recent years moved towards being a person who doesn't stand for that and won't let that happen and all of the privileges that I was like mentioning earlier realizing that like I'm in a position where like yeah, I'm one of the trans people coming in for this, but I'm also one of the trans people that this casting director might be listening to. And if it's a white casting director asking me invasive questions, I might be able to stop them and be like, you really shouldn't be asking people that and explain why. And they might be more willing to listen to me than the next person who comes into the room. And so I've been able to have some of those conversations and move into like, a consulting role without getting paid for that consulting often. <laughs> um, right. But it is a situation where I know like I was in for a commercial. Oh God, who knows how long ago at this point <laughs> COVID is a time loss. 
but I was in for this commercial a while ago where they kept asking me to go softer, go lighter, all of these things. And I literally turned to the casting director after they gave the note like the third or fourth time. And I was like, no matter how many times we do it, I'm still going to be a baritone. So do you want me to go? Well done. Well done. Because you asked for a trans girl and a lot of us sound like this. So no matter what you do, you're going to be a baritone. Was there a moment in either an audition or with a casting director, et cetera, that you were like, you know what? That question is inappropriate or that is not. No, no more. Just to add to that question, Eric, I mean, it's that idea of like when we first start in the business, there are things that we accept and then somehow we move to this position as we grow in strength that we're like, no, I don't accept that anymore. So I'm also interested in was there a moment when you went, "Mm, not anymore? Or was it, you know, what was the transition from being the actor who was just like, as you said, grateful and happy to be there to being, no, this is not acceptable. What John said, better question. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was like a slow progression for me where like I, like microaggressions that I just mentioned that I heard in auditions and things like that. I didn't speak up in those situations and it was, a thing that I would hear the thing and I'd be like, oh God, okay. Uh, And we sing, you want me to sing? Um, (laughs) And like deal with that. It was a series of hearing things like that. And then as I left the audition being like, okay, in that moment I could have said this. And then I guess if they listen, then we could also explain that and like move through those things. And so it was like trial and error of like hearing enough awful stories and like we luckily have like a Facebook group where trans and non-binary actors do ask for advice and like share similar experiences and things like that so hearing stories from other folks and hearing how people are navigating that conversation helped me to be like oh if I was in that room I would want to say this and so then next time I was in that room and something was said I could be like I want to say this. (laughs) So I don't think it was like one aha moment, but like a series of like trial and error that I still grapple with. And I still like go back on sometimes. And like, I've gotten really comfortable doing that in like the theater world. But then like, if I'm on a TV set, I'm a lot more reserved because I feel new there. And I still feel like part of me should be grateful for this opportunity and I shouldn't cause any waves and things like that. Maybe, do you feel a sense that the tide is turning a little bit now? A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I don't know. So I'm really asking, where are we? I mean, we're in COVID, so who knows where we are at this point. But I think think that for myself personally, I'm seeing a push towards me playing roles that might be trans and don't have to talk about it like safe word was and getting more roles like that will make it easier to play roles like that and more audiences will be able to sit with and listen to roles like that but also the thing that i love is when i get called in for roles that don't need me to be trans and getting called in for roles that just feel like me and just feel authentic and real the first three TV shows that I did um, weren't specifically looking for a trans person to play the role. One was open to like queer women. One was actually looking for gay men and one was open to all genders. And they were roles that 
all of those were like one liners that I did, but they were all moments where I could go in and be like, hey, I'm a person who could play this. There's a lot of different people who could play this, but like, I'm one of them. And they agreed. And like, that's what excites me. That's the work that I want to be doing, where it's not ignoring the fact that I'm trans. It's acknowledging the fact that I'm also a woman. I'm also a person. I also have feelings. I often say there aren't cis roles. There are roles that are usually played by cis people. Um, And thinking of cis people as the default is not necessarily going to be helpful. Um, And it's not necessarily going to be the best way to tell your story all of the time. Where, like, obviously there's, like, more nuance and everything to the conversation if, like, you're going to cast me in a role and then, like, she gets pregnant and things like that. Like, my body doesn't work that way. But also, like, when we're watching, like, Waitress on Broadway, do we actually think that woman's pregnant every night? Like, we suspend your disbelief, folks. Like, there's different ways that people can tell these stories um, and they can be genuine. Absolutely right. I have a a, que- a first one of our first questions. You sort of answered it just now, but I, I want to get to it. How is today's social justice movement affecting the transgender community in a broader sense, and also specifically to the theater community? Yeah, in the broader sense, I know a couple of years ago when the public was doing Southern Comfort, they had a town hall where a lot of trans folks came and spoke. And I think it was MJ Kaufman who mentioned that this like trans tipping point that Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black created and like all of this new representation that we were seeing, I think it was MJ who was saying, I actually hate this moment and saying that it made it so much harder for a lot of trans people to navigate their everyday lives because now more people had language to talk about us and had more language to use against us. And trans people kind of became hyper-visible with this representation, which is like a pendulum swing of representation, right? And so trans folks were able to exist a little more comfortably and fly like under the radar before this conversation really started growing. But I also think with a lot of social issues and a lot of social justice movements, that's inevitable starting point to move towards progress. And progress is born out of discomfort. And if we're not uncomfortable, then we're not going to get anywhere. That also being said, though, in the terms of trans folks, it's not just discomfort. It's oftentimes literal physical safety and lives are on the line. And when we look at the rates of violence against trans women of color in this country, that hyper-visibility and that representation needs to go further and needs to go faster because I think what MJ was talking about is the root of violence, a root of violence for those women. And so when we're talking about like these roles or in like the theater and film and TV industry, when we're talking about these things specifically, you were mentioning earlier, like the tropes that trans people often play for their sex workers and oftentimes getting murdered while being sex workers and they're in prison and all of these things. If that's the only representation of trans people you're seeing on TV or you're seeing on stage, then that's who you assume trans people to be. And so when you see somebody in your life um, or walking down the street and all of those things, 
your mind is going to go to that person's a criminal or that person's a sex worker and all of those things where I don't want to speak ill of sex workers, obviously, like that is work that we should be decriminalizing sex work and all of those things. However, the stigma of trans people only having sex work as an option and only being seen as a sex worker who is just there to contribute to whatever cis man's narrative is happening, that's where the problem shows up. There are stories about sex workers that are beautiful and nuanced and exist in beautiful ways. Pose is a great example. Yeah, I think that representation has its perks and its downfalls. And a lot of people are seeing the brunt end of it right now. And I think we just need to push the conversation further. I just love what you said. Well, love, but that now people have language to use against a community and the light being shone on that community. Just the lack of seeing people as human, the lack of seeing their humanity. I guess I don't have a question as much as (laughs) like it struck me that you know, we're human, we're just, we're we're people, but we can take language to devalue someone's humanity. And and, and, yeah. I I hear you, John. I I know exactly what you're talking about. And I I feel the same way. I do have another question from an audience member, maybe. If you could play, if you could have a plethora of roles or be able to play any role or do any project, what would it be? That's actually, so a lot of what I've been doing in this like COVID pause is playing some of my dream roles in my basement. Okay, let's do it though. <laughs> I want to know what those dream roles are and, and, I, and I want the video. Uh-huh. <laughs> a lot of what I've been doing is like finding roles that I could potentially start auditioning for in like regional theaters um, and making people see me. And finding roles that also I think a trans person playing would like add something to the narrative and add nuance to the story. I think above all, the thing that comes to mind is I really want to be a trans femme Cinderella in Into the Woods because I think there's so many trans themes within that story and within Cinderella's arc. On the steps of the palace, she talks about what if he knew what you are when, or, oh God, what are those lyrics? Talking about like being like the man not knowing who you are, but then what if you are what a prince would envision? And like, how do you know what that person wants until you try? And that's how I navigate my romantic life often is like, Add that person I'm attracted to, but I don't think they'll be into me. And that's just based on, transphobia in the greater scheme of the world and just assuming somebody's not going to be attracted to me because I'm trans where like sometimes that person turns around and is really interested in me and I'm like oh hello Um, (laughs) and so like Cinderella is definitely like on that list for me I also think there's a lot of okay Cinderella is trans in my mind every Disney princess is actually a little bit trans but like oh let's talk about that but because here's the thing When Cinderella goes home from the ball and then the prince comes looking for her, her stepmother says there's no other girl that lives here. So her stepmother is misgendering her and she's not affirming. And then like, why doesn't the prince recognize her? 
Because, like, he has eyes. Like, he saw her. Like, the updo and a gown doesn't change what her face looks like. But, like, if she's not allowed to present femme at home, she might be less noticeable. And he might not actually realize who she is. Maybe, Burke, that might go down (laughs) as the most genius revelation of a Disney movie I've ever heard in my life. It's a very, Any directors very out there want to yeah. do Into the Woods, you know where the woods. Wait, Hashtag I, every Disney princess is a little bit trans. The going down. <laughs> I mean, I'm not wrong. I could go through them all if you want. Tell me, are, are there any other roles that you really would love to play in a perfect world? I I always used to joke, and I've I think I've said this at Broadway Con when I've spoken there that I won't rest until I'm Cassie in a chorus line, um, and I have years to go there. But also, like I'm not a trained dancer, like I'm a decent dancer, and like I haven't been dancing in a while, so like who knows what my Cassie would look like at this point? Very pedestrian. But that's another one that it's like I can't get a job, Zach. Like people aren't casting me. Put me on the line. Like put me on your line. And like going to a friend and being like, I need a job because other casting directors aren't seeing me. So like, I need you to cast me. And that's the thing that I resonate very strongly with. We have that in common. I (laughs) am dying to play Cassie. And if you go back into the archives, you'll hear an interview I did with Robert Lupone, who played the original Zach. And Mm -hmm. we cut it actually from the actual podcast, but I asked him to read the the scene with me and it was <laughs> it goes down as like one of the most Call incredible moments of my, of my life I you know I got to read Cassie with the original Zach and and I hear what you're saying yeah you know I need you now Zach because you know me and I need this job so yeah that makes sense okay I have another question from an audience how can I avoid misgendering somebody by accident that happens honestly i hear that i do that sometimes that's a thing that i always like to make people know is that misgendering happens i misgender cis people sometimes right like sometimes you just say the wrong pronoun and that happens i think the best thing to do is not assume anybody's gender and i'm saying like anybody's gender not just somebody that you might think looks androgynous or who might like look like they're looking trans because what does that even mean and what does that look like but what I often say and what we say in the trans literacy project is that the mistakes don't matter so much as how you deal with the mistakes and if you just apologize correct yourself and move on we can move past it sometimes just like just brushing it off and not addressing it isn't gonna work but sometimes just being like oh I said the wrong thing let me say the right thing and then move on. And when I say move on, I mean move on and don't do it again. Like move on to do better. <laughs> but the thing is, a lot of people get like so worked up and like, oh my God, obviously I would never do that to you. Like I'm such a good person and you know that and like, I love you. And like that ends up putting a lot of pressure on the trans person then to be like, oh no, it's okay. And then we have to comfort you in that moment where to avoid misgendering somebody we would have to just like never use gendered language. Um, And I don't think that that's, I mean, that's like a good way to like use as a default before you know somebody and you know what pronouns they use or what words they're comfortable with. But I think that mistakes are bound to happen. And rather than getting so bogged down in like, what if I make a mistake? Just learning easy, fast ways to hold yourself accountable for those mistakes. Excellent. I have one, one more question because unfortunately we have to wrap it up. 
Your audience is asking what is your TikTok because they want to see, and me especially, oh, audience being me, I um, I want to see the short form content you've been putting out. So, oh God, I'm so breath. sorry in I mean, advance. No, no, no. I you're lucky I didn't go on it as we were talking. So I <laughs> I just discovered TikTok for myself. You know, being a fifty something man. I, I've become a little obsessed. All of my social media is at Believe in Maybe. It's just like my tattoo says, Believe in Maybe. At Believe um, in Maybe. Yeah. So a lot of what I've been doing in this pause and like with finding roles and things is playing with like new areas of my register that I haven't been singing in for a long time. So I fully <laughs> apologize in advance for what you're seeing on TikTok. <laughs> Because it's not a polished moment for any of those. That's what TikTok is for, right? Indeed. Okay. Maybe, Burke. I want to let you know, I, I've learned so much within this hour. You're a lovely, lovely person. And you give voice to so many people that don't have one. Your activism and your artistry and your, your drive to change the world is inspiring to me. John, you want to take us out? I just wanted to also say thank you. And it was great to spend some time with you. You know, for me, the thing that I kind of want to hear as your last thing is what is your hope? What is your wish, you know, for the theater, for trans people past COVID and beyond? Well, thank you both. First of all, that's very sweet. The things that you're saying. I think that my hope is a little grander than my need. And my need right now is for Black trans women to be safe. And my need right now is for people to stop killing my sisters. And I need people to stand up for trans folks who are experiencing violence, specifically trans women of color, specifically Black trans women. I need to see people as adamant about Black trans lives as they are about voting in this election. I need that conversation to be on the mainstream and I need it to be constant and consistent. My hope is that once we've got everybody able to live their lives, that we can move to a place where we can live it fully and we can live it weirdly and we can be mediocre and we can be strange, and we can be fun, and show the beautiful diversity and differences within trans experiences and within every human experience. And on a bit of a selfish note, I hope there is a casting director listening to this podcast who wants to do Into the Woods regionally next year when we can and casts me <laughs> as Cinderella. Brilliant, brilliant. Looks like uh, um, maybe it looks like you got some TikTok work to do. So uh, already casting directors <laughs> out there have to do go on, the on to the TikTok, on TikTok and work. Work on your upper <laughs> register, my dear. <laughs> it's, it's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you maybe. maybe. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, audience. That's our show for today. We'll see you again very soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Be safe. <laughs> Thanks, friends. Thank you. And that's our show. Next week, my guest co-host will be the incredible Daphne Rubin Vega. We will be interviewing actor, recording artist, producer, and theater arts teacher, Telly Leon, which will air on October 23rd. And then John Andrew and I will be interviewing 
Tony Award-winning actor, Tanya Pinkins, which will air on October 30th. Tanya will be joining us from South Korea, where she's editing her new film, Red Pill. November 6th, we will air our conversation with Iranian-American actor, writer, filmmaker, and transgender activist, Kulia Mosini. More information on these guests and how to attend one of our recordings online can be found on our website, liveatthelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer yours truly, associate producer Jeffrey Schubert. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Roddy. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Alana Canty Samuel. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.